You're listening to the Tree of Life podcast, where we desire to be a bridge between the two covenantal peoples, physical Israel and spiritual Israel, by inspiring the non-Jewish part of Messiah's body to reconnect with its Jewish roots through biblical teaching and worshipful demonstrations, and to work towards greater understanding and reconciliation between Messiah's body and traditional Judaism. And now, here's Rabbi Joel Lieberman. If you have your Bibles, open up with me in the book of Psalms. We are doing something a little different. Usually when I teach through a book of the Scriptures, I go line upon line, precept upon precept. I don't skip around any verses. I'm not speaking directly to someone here in the house's situation because it was just the next verse and chapter in the, in the progression. But in the book of Psalms, since we're not going to do the whole book of Psalms, that would take 75 to 150 weeks to do that, we are just uh, highlighting some of these. And of course, we've taken uh, the first book of Psalms, the book of five books of Psalms, actually, that they're divided up into, and two ones that uh, have been some of my personal favorites, some of the obvious ones to teach through, Psalms 1 and 2, 22 and 23, we've gone through. But now we're in the second book of Psalms, and these are much less well-known, and these are more difficult Psalms, and they cover different themes. And so, as I've been looking at these uh, a week ahead of time, uh, I have asked the Lord, Lord, I don't want to do that. That's not an exciting psalm. And he says, well, that's why I want you to teach on it. <laughs> as I mentioned, as we opened up, again, the first book was Psalms 1 through 41, the book of personal experience. And those have been really relational, and that's why we relate to them so well. Today and next Shabbat, I want to begin in book 2 of Psalms, Psalms chapter 42 to 72, the book of Elohim. But looking at four psalms over the next two weeks from that book, again, they're going to be markedly, markedly different and for some more difficult to comprehend from those that we've looked at already. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 49 today. It's my prayer today that the current recession, the administration's updated definition of what that is says we're not in one. But that's contradictory to what we've always known, to subsequent quarters of GDP, negative growth. It's my prayer that this current recession will be a life-changing, unforgettable lesson in values clarification for all American followers of Yeshua. That's my prayer. Perhaps Adonai will use this time to pry us loose from our love of the things that so easily tempt us. Maybe we will begin during this time to identify the vast majority of people around the world for whom life is a perpetual recession. I see my friends in the house and I missed an announcement. That's why my phone was up here. It's an exciting announcement. So park in Psalm 49 for a moment. Uh, one of our own is going to be on KPRZ perennially, beginning Sundays at 11 a.m., on KPRZ, that's 1210 AM. What's the FM on that? 106.1. And he's going to have an hour show, uh, Reverend Earl, the kingdom, excuse me, simple truth moments. It's going to be an hour show on Sunday. It's a great time slot, actually. A lot of people are going to Sunday church and, and they're driving there or driving back from the service. Simple truth moments by Reverend Earl. And I know a lot of the content's going to be stuff that we've been dealing with here. 
uh, the one new Jewish man issues, and I know a lot of that's going to flow into that program as well. Tonight, uh, his friend, our good friend Don and Nevildsen, if I've pronounced that right, is going to be on uh, the Come Together San Diego Cast Taylor show at 6 p.m. regarding his newly released book entitled The Kingdom from Creation to the Millennium. Many of you got to hear him uh, at the June 4th One New Man event. And so I'm excited that one of our own's got a prime time slot on the airwaves. He begins recording this coming Monday, so keep him in prayer uh, for that. And keep him in prayer that the finances will be there to continue funding that show. We appreciate you moving forward on that, and I believe that's a result of the conference as well. Back in Psalm 49, maybe during this recession time, we were going to grow in our understanding of what it truly means to seek first Adonai's kingdom and his righteousness. Maybe during this time, we will be more faithful to lay up treasures in heaven where recessions never affect our investments. Maybe in light of the shortness of life, we will shift our focus from storing up treasures on earth and instead focus on being rich toward God. And Psalm 49 is an unusual psalm. It's a difficult psalm. And unlike most of the psalms, it's addressed to the human community and not to God. Psalm 49's theme is the futility of living for this world's possessions. The futility of living for the world's status and fame in light of the certainty of death. And so rather than focusing directly on praise to God, the psalm here gives instruction that if we heed the instruction, will ultimately result in praise to God. And so it gives us the understanding that we need to live right in light of eternity so that one day we can present back to God a heart of wisdom. And so the message of this psalm in one sentence is this. Because we all are going to die, our focus should not be on riches and fame in this life, but on eternity with God. Several commentators, by the way, observe that Yeshua probably based his parable of the rich fool that we looked at in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21, on this psalm. And I believe there's good merit to that. In any event, Psalm 49 really falls into four different sections. Let's begin reading section number one, verse one. A psalm for the music director, a psalm of the sons of Korah. You'll remember Korah in the Torah. Apparently the sons learned the lesson of that, and so they're psalm writers here. Hear this, all ye people, all you peoples. Give ear, all you inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth speaks wisdom. My heart's meditation is understanding. I will turn my ear to a proverb. I will utter my riddle on the harp. So we see the call of the psalmist here. Every person from every nation, every walk of life should heed this counsel, should hear it. So the psalmist here is addressing rich and poor together. The poor, how many of you know the poor? Poor people can be just as materialistic as rich people. Why? Because materialism is a desire of the heart, not just a matter of owning stuff. Furthermore, the psalmist claims here in the section one, opening of this, that he's going to speak wisdom. He's going to give us some understanding. Wisdom comes from the Hebrew word meaning skill. It refers to the necessary skill to live in such a manner as to produce 
a beautiful life in the sight of the Lord. And so the psalmist is passing on to us here wisdom that he has gained by inclining his ear to God. He says that he's going to literally, in the Hebrew, open up to us a riddle. The riddle seems to be the age-old question, doesn't it? Why are evil people comfortable and rich while the godly are often poor and oppressed? The psalmist's answer to the riddle is that, as we're going to see, that no amount of money can buy a person, buy escape for a person from death and judgment. We're all going to have to stand before Adonai, who will either condemn us because we live for this world, verse 15, or because in verse 16, redeem us and receive us because we lived in light wisely in terms of eternity. And so while the message of the psalm is pretty basic, something that every follower of Yeshua knows, at the same time, it's a message that we need to hear about and we need to ponder about often, I believe. Now, although you and I know intellectually that even when one has an abundance and that our life doesn't consist of possessions, isn't it easy for us to forget that and to be tempted by greed? Because we're all susceptible to this, or the scripture wouldn't have warned us against it, we all need to ponder the message of Psalm 49. Let's move on to the second section of the psalm. We see the psalmist's call in these opening verses. Now we're going to see the psalmist's counsel. His counsel is don't fear that when those who trust in their wealth prosper. Because their wealth cannot buy them an escape from death. Verse 6, why should I fear in evil days? When the iniquity of my deceivers surrounds me. Or those trusting in their wealth Boasting about their great riches. No man can redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of a soul is costly, so one should stop trying forever. Will he live forever and never see the pit? Surely he must see that even wise men die. The fool and the brutish will also will alike perish, leaving their wealth to others. Their inward thought is, their houses are eternal, their dwellings for generation after generation. They name their lands after themselves. But the pompous man will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. So the prosperity of the wicked, the psalmist writes, is at best brief and useless when it comes to holding off or staving off death, right? The psalmist declares that he describes himself as one who is surrounded by deceivers. He specifically mentions, quote, those trusting in their wealth, boasting about their great riches. He's talking about the arrogant rich who don't trust in God. You see, power and influence often go hand in glove with wealth so that the wealthy have close ties to those in political power, or they, or they use wealth themselves to gain office for themselves politically. The psalmist reflects on the obvious that no one can use money to redeem his brother or to give God a ransom for his brother so, or himself to prolong his life. In other words, you can't bribe Adonai with a payoff to buy yourself or to buy any family member a few more years, much less to escape from death so as to live forever. 
Yet, at the same time, on the one hand, everyone needs to be redeemed from eternal and spiritual death. And so since this is a universal dilemma, there needs to be a solution which is divine. So the psalmist's first answer to the riddle of the prosperity of the rich and their oppression of the poor is that their success is brief at best and useless in holding off death. Section number three is the psalmist's contrast. We've seen his call, we've seen his counsel, but the contrast is the foolish ignore eternity and trust in their wealth, whereas the godly look to the Lord to redeem and receive them. Look at verse 14 with me. Such is the way of the self-confident and their followers who approve their sayings. Like sheep, they are destined for Sheol. Death will be their shepherd, and the upright will rule over them in the morning. Their image will decay in Sheol, far from its lofty place. But God redeems my soul from the power of Sheol, for he receives me. So the psalmist is saying, even though others watch the rich accumulate their wealth, only to what? To die and to leave it all behind. They're not learning the lesson. They still want to get rich. And while the wicked wealthy may live in mansions today, when they die, it says they're not going to have a habitation except for Sheol, the grave. The biblical Sheol refers to the grave where the bodies, not the souls, the bodies of all people Wicked and righteous alike go at death. The book of Job chapter 17 tells us the word Sheol. It actually shows us there. It describes a downward place that is dusty and infested with worms. Typified by decay. When, what one expects from descriptions of the grave, right? Although disembodied souls notably are not eaten by worms and they are not rotting, okay? But complicating this understanding of Sheol, though, is the psalmist's confidence that Adonai, quote, would redeem his soul from the power of Sheol. You see, often when the Hebrew word here for soul, nephesh, the word translated here in, in verse 16 as soul, when the word nephesh is used for you grammarians here as an object of the verb here, which is redeem, it refers not to one's immaterial nature, one's soul, but to a person's life or to the entire individual himself, soul and body. So why is it that those who trust in their riches are going to be consumed in Sheol, whereas those who are upright will be welcomed into heaven by the Lord? The difference is here, the psalmist tells us, is that Adonai is going to redeem their souls from the power of the grave. To redeem, what does that mean? It means to buy back, to buy something or someone out of the marketplace. You see, in spiritual terms, the word redeem refers to God's buying us out of the marketplace of sin and setting us free. So let's look at the final section. The psalmist, again, he goes back and repeats some of his counsel to the human community. The counsel is this. Don't fear when the wicked wealthy prosper because soon they're going to die like unreasoning animals. Verse 17. Do not be afraid when a man gets rich. 
when his house's splendor increases. For when he dies, he takes nothing away. His splendor will not follow him down. Though during his life, he congratulates himself, right? They're spraining their wrists, patting themselves on the back. And men praise you when you do well for yourself. He will still join his father's company, who will never see the light. A pompous man, without understanding, he's like the beasts that perish. And so the psalmist again repeats for emphasis his earlier counsel in verses 6 through 13 that we just looked at. My friends, don't worry, he says, when a person becomes rich and famous. Why? Because when they die, this is the wicked wealthy, by the way, they leave with the same amount as everyone else leaves, with nothing, no stuff. And so the point of the psalm is to gain understanding, gain that understanding so that no one should perish. You see, to die without understanding, the need to be right before the Lord is to die like an unreasoning beast. Don't do that. Learn from the psalmist. Because we all will die, our focus should not be, my friends, in accumulating more and more stuff in this life, but rather our focus should be on spending eternity with, with the Lord. This psalm in these financially trying times tells us this. Don't lay up treasures on earth. Everything that we invest in this world is soon going to be gone. Invest in God's kingdom. Be rich toward God. Well, we move on to the next psalm. To a what we could call a heavenly courtroom drama. How many of you watch these courtroom dramas? My wife is binging on these Netflix courtroom dramas. I binge on things like Gold Rush. That's probably not a great admission after Psalm 49. Now that I think about that. Okay, Lord, I hear you. Psalm 50 is not... You know the golden rule, right? He who has the gold rules. That's the golden rule, isn't it? No, it's not the golden rule. Psalm 50 is not addressed to the Lord. It's, addressed, it's an admonition from the Lord. This might be a more familiar psalm to many of you. The author of it, according to the list of temple musicians in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, was Asaph. How many of you know Asaph? He was a prophet. He was a seer. He was appointed by David to serve in the Jerusalem temple. So this is the first psalm of an Asaphite collection. The rest of his psalms are 73 through 83. Again, who were they? The Asaphites were Levites who served as temple singers in the second temple. So in the psalm, Asaph presents a heavenly courtroom drama. Adonai, the awesome judge, judge, is an indictment of his people in a covenantal lawsuit. The judge calls his witnesses, he calls the defendants, and takes his seat. And he levels here two felony charges against the defendants. Number one, they have fallen into religious ritualism rather than worshiping Adonai from the heart. And some of them are accused of open rebellious, religious, hypocrite, being hypocrites. 
They still followed the religious rituals, but they lived flagrantly in disobedience. This was the charges. These were the charges. The psalm ends by calling both groups, calling on both of them to turn back to God and worship Him from the heart. So we see here, as we're going to go through it, the psalm is permeated with imagery from the story of Adonai giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. It's interesting, that, but the setting of the psalm is not Mount Sinai here. It is Zion. It is Jerusalem. And so the first section, as we look at it quickly, of this psalm deals with the, the first tablet of the Torah, how we're to worship God. And the second section of the psalm deals with the second tablet of the Torah, specifically the seventh, eighth, and ninth commandments concerning adultery, theft, and false speech. I find it interesting, this parallel here, although it's in a different location, Jerusalem and Mount Sinai, God says back in Exodus chapter 20 concerning the Ten Commandments, he begins by saying, I am the Lord your God, remember? In this psalm in verse 7, Adonai says, I am God your God. So we see a parallel here, but the overall message of the psalm is this, my friends. When we stand before him, what's going to matter is not that we've performed religious rituals, but that we've worshipped and obeyed Adonai from, from our hearts. So let's unpack that statement together. That we're all going to stand before the Lord for judgment. Let's open verse 1. A psalm of Asaph, Psalm 50. God, Elohim Adonai has spoken. And summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and does not keep silent. A fire is devouring before him. And it storms around him mightily. He calls to the heavens above. And to the earth to judge his people. Gather my kiddushim to me, God says, who cut a covenant with me with a sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. We're all going to stand before the judge for judgment. Now, the only times that I've been summoned, you'll be glad to know, to court, are for jury duty. My wife just finished jury duty service this week. She just called in every day and didn't have to go in, thankfully. But if I were accused of a serious crime, how many of you know that would be a fearful experience? The bailiff commands, please rise. The judge enters in his black gown. How'd you look in a black gown? I never have asked you that question. Eh, somewhat. Yeah, not too good. Yeah, he probably had shorts and a Hawaiian shirt underneath. All is silent. The judge bangs his gavel and pronounces the court is now in session. We will hear the case now of Joel Lieberman against the court of heaven. Oy vey. Uh-oh. So up to this point, as we've been reading in these opening verses, Psalm 50, God's covenant people might be thinking as they're hearing this or reading this, finally, God's going to judge all these wicked pagans. It's about time. But then, look at verse 4 again, the second half of verse 4. The psalmist surprises us. He reveals that Adonai has summoned, what? All of heaven and earth to be witnesses in his courtroom as he judges his people. Mm. Do you think about that fact that one day soon, you and I are going to be standing before the judgment seat of Messiah? 
The Scriptures repeatedly warn us about the coming judgment. Why? So that we will live daily in view of that judgment. Now let's read on. When we stand before the Lord for judgment, what's going to matter is not that we have performed religious rituals, but that we have worshipped God from the heart. Verse 7, hear my people and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you, the Lord saying, I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices, for your burnt offerings are continually before me. I have no need of a bull from your house, nor goats, Jeff and Mary, from your pens. He has no need of those. For every, yeah, for every beast of the forest is mine. And the cattle on a thousand hills is mine. I know every bird of the mountains. Everything moving in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. But, or do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer God a sacrifice of thank offerings. Then fulfill your vows to Elion. Call upon me in the day of trouble. When I rescue you, you will honor me. So a proper understanding of the purpose of sacrifice, the sons of Korah, or David and the sons of Asaph here, tells us that the psalm's not objecting to sacrifices per se, but he they insist that, number one, they have to be understood symbolically rather than as actual food for God, right? And number two, they're not sufficient but have to be accompanied by correct behavior. And so it's intended, this psalm, I believe, is to serve as a contrasting ideology to the sacrificial practices of the neighbors of Israel, the Egyptians, the Mesopotamians. You remember, God does not need to be sustained with food like those gods had to be. And secondly, I think more, most more important here is that the Israelites have an obligation to the Lord to make thank offerings as a sign of their acknowledgement of the covenant. It's the failure of people, I believe, to differentiate between ritual and the knowledge of God that's so often condemned by the prophets over and over and over in scriptures. And so Adonai speaks first to his people who have kept these prescribed sacrifices. But what happened? They had drifted from the reality of worshiping Adonai in spirit and in truth. Adonai has no complaint with their outward compliance to the sacrifices and burnt offerings, but their hearts were not right before him. I've patterned our services, I've patterned our meetings, I've patterned our community life here based on passages like this. Other Messianic congregations you can walk into and it may be a different feel for you in these areas of worship, in these areas of tradition, in these areas of ritual. He's not condemning them per se for the sacrifices. But God does not need to be sustained with food like the gods of Egypt and Mesopotamia. And so God, again, he's speaking to his people who had kept these prescribed sacrifices, but they had drifted from the reality of worshiping God in spirit and truth. God has no complaint, again, with their outward compliance to these burnt offerings and sacrifices. Again, but here's the point. Their hearts are not right before him. 
They weren't thankful to God. They weren't acknowledging his blessings. They weren't connecting their religious rituals with their daily lives. And when they were in trouble, they weren't calling to God in dependence and faith. Perhaps they had just presumed on the fact, hey, I offered a sheep yesterday. They thought that God could deliver them because of their sacrifices. Rather, they congratulated themselves for keeping the rituals. And I think a few things rise in our hearts as we ponder this issue. And that is there's a human tendency, is there not, to fall into ritualism rather than maintaining a close relationship with God. We feel that things are okay between God and ourselves. Why? Because we've been regular in congregational attendance. Or we feel especially spiritual, right, when we had a quiet time every day this week. We feel super spiritual. Or we are obedient to tithe. So things must be right between us and God because we tithe. At the same time, we tolerate sin, all sorts of sin, in our thought life, in our words, in our actions. And so we need to fight against our own tendency to fall into that ditch of ritualism rather than maintaining a close relationship with the Lord. Now, ritualism, what does that do? Listen, I've been in this movement for a long time. I've seen a lot of stuff. Ritualism gives the ritualist a sense of pride, whereas heartfelt worship humbles us before God. Our Jewish people were priding themselves for their generosity in offering their bulls, Jeff's goats. But God pointedly reminds them, Jeff, Mary, all of us, he owns it all. It's not a pride issue about when they offer something to him. What it's only because he first gave it to them. He doesn't need their offerings to sustain himself like he's hungry or something. So if we find ourselves taking pride because we follow the biblical form of worship or because we tithe our income or because we haven't missed a congregational service in years. I've been prideful about that then we're guilty of ritualism. Now, certainly we should seek to be biblical in all of our forms of worship. We should give generously to the Lord while remembering that everything that we have anyway belongs to Him. We should be faithful in gathering each week with the Kedoshim, absolutely. But we should do it out of a grateful heart for all of God's gracious blessings. True worship, it's not a pride thing. It humbles ourselves before Him. Now, some might be thinking here, might be wondering, well, what if we perform religious rituals from the heart? Isn't that okay? After all, God is not condemning sacrifices in this psalm. He's the one who instituted the sacrificial system. No, rather, he's condemning sacrifices when their hearts were not right before him. So what if a person performs various religious rituals but does so from the heart? Isn't that proper? The answer is it's proper if these rituals are prescribed in Scripture or are not antithetical to the spirit of the Scriptures. Heartfelt worship, on the other hand, involves what? Thanksgiving, faithfulness, dependence on the Lord. And so the psalmist Asaph here gives the remedy for empty ritualism. We see that in verses 14 and 15 here. The psalmist sets, listen, thanksgiving and prayer 
over against ritual as a summary of all true worship. Thanksgiving acknowledges that Adonai has given us every great blessing by His grace. We cannot genuinely thank the Lord unless you and I are in submission to Him and trusting Him, especially if we're thanking Him in the midst of recession, in the midst of trials. Nor can we thank the Lord, nor can we call out to Him in prayer in a time if we're maybe harboring sin in our hearts. So genuine prayer and thanksgiving presuppose that there's holiness going on on the heart level. So now the court has finished with the first defendant for the time being. And then he moves on and he summons the second defendant before him. Look with me at verse 16. But to the wicked, defendant number two, God says, What are you doing? Reciting my laws and taking my covenant in your mouth. For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and your portion is with adulterers. You have unleashed your mouth for evil and harnessed your tongue for deceit. You sit speaking against your brother, slandering your own mother's son. These things you have done, should I keep silent? You thought it was just like you, but I reprove you and set the case before your eyes. So when we stand before God for his judgment, this second defendant, what's going to matter to, is not that we've performed religious rituals, but that we have, as we looked in defendant number one, worshiped God from our heart. This defendant has a problem with obeying God from his heart or her heart. God, next, he's calling the wicked, right? They're hypocrites. They can quote God's statutes. They claim to be God's people, but they're tolerating sin in their lives few things to note here. It's possible for religious people to cast God's word in verse 17 behind them. This refers to correction through instruction. It implies, my friends, that we need to change, right? When we read God's word, when we hear the word of God preached or taught, what? So we don't shrug it off. That's for somebody else. No, we need to change. I need to change. My wife and I were having some aggressive communication last night. I needed to change. It was all on me. Everything coming out of my mouth was wrong and hurtful. It didn't apply to her. It didn't apply to somebody else. We take it to heart and correct whatever is wrong in our words, whatever is wrong in our thinking, whatever is wrong in our relationships or our behavior. The tolerance of sin in other people is not much different than tolerating sin in ourselves either. Perhaps these religious hypocrites did not engage in adultery themselves. Maybe they didn't engage in thievery themselves. But they were pleased to have such people as their friends. Hello. They were proud of their tolerance. They were not judgmental. They were open-minded. Oh, man. These hypocrites were engaging in deception and slander, Asaph writes. We're prone to invent God in our own image. 
so that we don't have to deal with our sins. God says, these things you have done, should I keep silent? You thought I was just like you. April, if you'd come up. They mistook the patience of God for his approval of their evil deeds. So God then gives a final appeal and he rules, and he produces a ruling for both defendants here. And the ruling is if we live in the view of his coming judgment, we're not going to forget him and we're going to worship and we're going to obey him from our hearts. Verse 22. Now consider this, you who forget God, or else I will tear you in pieces with no one to rescue you. A sacrifice of praise honors me. And to the one who orders his way, I will show the salvation of God. So God here begins as we close this time with a warning to the disobedient hypocrites and those who forgot him and forget him. Strong stuff. He's hitting these hypocrites hard because otherwise they will ridicule all correction. We had a situation in a Messianic synagogue in the IMCS this week. We had to issue an extremely strong rebuke to some of its leaders who were causing division. Sometimes you'll see these things in the Word of God. This warning of disobedience. They need to respond quickly, God says. Why? Because the door of mercy may not always stand open. Secondly, here God's conveying an exhortation to those who actually do repent. Make teshuvah. Those who go through the actions of worship and sacrifice through the right with the right motives. He shows them the way to live, verse 23. And so by sincerely offering a thank offering to him, we honor him. And prepare the way to experience further instances in our lives, not only of his salvation, but of his deliverance. The problem with the rebellious hypocrites in this courtroom was that they forgot God. But the ritualists were not much different, were they? They didn't acknowledge the many blessings of God by offering him a sacrifice of thanksgiving either. And so, as we close this morning, if you would stand with me today. There's a story of an American newspaper who asked William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, they asked him what he regarded as the dangers ahead, the chief dangers ahead for the 20th century. He replied tersely, quote, religion without the Holy Spirit Forgiveness without repentance. Salvation without regeneration. Politics without God. And heaven without hell. Psalm 50 warns, make sure that doesn't describe us. When we stand before God, my friends, what will matter is not that we've performed religious rituals, but that we have worshiped and obeyed God from our hearts. I think this is a clarion call word 
to our Messianic community. Listen, if we are trying to imitate the Orthodox community with all the ritual that have added to the scriptures, man, that is just the wrong road to take. That's not our goal here at Tree. If that's what you're looking for, I will give you the names, addresses, and times of those synagogues in this city. And there are many that feel uncomfortable with the way we worship here. Maybe you felt that way this morning. Oh, what's going on here? What is it? You feel uncomfortable. Why? Because God's trying to connect with you. And maybe you've got a little bit of sin in your heart. Maybe there's something you're uncomfortable. That's what we're headed. That's what we're focused on. We're not trying to out-orthodox the orthodox. Now, let me tell you, I often read the Siddur in the prayer book. It brings me into that great place of worship and connection. But it's not going to be a replacement so that I can check off that box. Bam, I went to the congregation. Bam, I said those prayers. Man, we were probably the least liturgical congregation in the Messianic movement. Why? Because I'm convinced of these issues that the psalmist had an issue with. I don't want to stand in front of God and he calls my name and says, you're in a lawsuit with me. I just want to do jury duty. That's it. And I barely want to do that. I want to call every day like Darcy. Your jury service is concluded. Thank you very much for remaining on call for five days. I don't want to be in a covenantal lawsuit with God on these issues. So, Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you for your word, Lord. It's powerful and it's, It goes so deep in our hearts and convicts and censures and rebukes and encourages. It does the work. It does the surgery that we need, even though we don't think we do. So, Lord, as we ponder this over the week and continue to move through the book of Psalms, Lord, we want to yield to your lordship in our time with you every day. Teach us, Lord. We need to change. We know that. We know that. Cleanse us, purge us by your mighty power. God loves you, my friends, loves you so much to give us these words of rebuke at times. No discipline is easy at the time, but it's working for an eternal glory, is it not? Praise the Lord. Well, I'm no Jack Zimmerman with the ironic blessing like last Shabbat. I'm going to lip sync it. We're going to get that going where it's going to be his voice and I'm going to lip sync it because that was powerful. I had chills. You all did too. But just receive it from your humble servant. It's the Lord's blessing anyway. Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you today. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May Adonai lift up his countenance over you and give you his shalom. In the name of the Sar Shalom, the Prince of all peace, Yeshua HaMashiach, all of us who are with him would say, Amen. Be Amen. Shalom, everybody. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website, treeoflifeca.org, and be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you've found value in this show, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes, or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out, too. 
If you like this show, you might want to check out our Facebook page, Tree of Life Messianic Jewish Congregation, to see more content, including our weekly live stream. Be sure to tune in for our next episode as we continue to explore our Jewish roots through Scripture.